to a Blazing Caribou Studios production. Support and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash blazingcariboustudios. I took the liberty of examining that parrot, and I discovered that the only reason that it had been sitting on its perch in the first place was that it had been nailed there. <laughs> well, of course it was nailed there, otherwise it muscled up to those bars and boom! Look, matey. <laughs> This parrot wouldn't boom if I put 4,000 bolts through it. It's bleeding demise. It's not. It's, it's pining. It's not pining. It's passed on. This parrot is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to meet its maker. This is a late parrot. It's a stiff, bereft of life. It rests in if you hadn't nailed it to the perch, you would be pushing up the daisies. It's run down the curtain and join the choir invisible. This is an ex-parrot. Hello, and welcome back to the Varmints Podcast, where every week we do a whole bunch of research to educate ourselves and you, the listener, on all things that creep, crawl, slither, fly, jump, hop, and swim on this planet. One animal at a time. I'm Paul. I have a cold, and I'm not an animal expert. I'm Donna. I don't have a cold, but I'm also not an animal expert. And today, we are going to talk about parrots! (laughs) (laughs) But first, the news. This is Varmin's Headline News with your anchorman, some guy named Paul. Thank you, Matthew. Lorikeets in Adelaide, Australia are getting drunk (laughs) in the Botanic Gardens. Rainbow lorikeets, renowned for their screeching, have been distinctly louder in the Adelaide Botanic Gardens recently because they are getting drunk. Hundreds of the brightly colored native Australians have been descending on a weeping boar bean tree near the summer house to drink fermenting nectar from its crimson flowers. <laughs> Commonly known as the drunken parrot tree, the flowers bloom in late spring through to early summer, providing the lorikeets with all the ingredients that they need for a big old dawn to dusk treehouse party of lorikeets. <laughs> The drunken lorikeets in the botanic garden sometimes have to be monitored and sometimes they have to be gathered up and put into little birdie drunk tanks to dry out because they will drink themselves until they are no more sometimes. (laughs) So they got to keep an eye on them. (laughs) Little boozikeets. The birds get intoxicated. And uh, they're not the only bird to do that. There's a New Zealand bird called the Karuru, which they gorge on fermenting rotted fruit. And then... They do that while they're up in the tree, and then they fall out of the tree. And then the and then the Maori gather them up and eat them. Ooh. But fortunately for the lorikeets, they're too small for that. And they're in a botanic garden, so nobody's going to eat them anyway. Right. <laughs> Here is somebody at the uh, at the botanic gardens describing what he sees. They stagger around. Uh, they can fall out of trees. Um, they actually appear to be a lot more friendly than normal. <laughs> well. <laughs> Kind of like people. <laughs> what do the lorikeets sound like when they're drunk? Do they go? Do they go ee, hip, <laughs> ee, <hip."> <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably something like that. <laughs> Times a million. Because I don't know how many lorikeets there are, but they probably make a racket. <laughs> they say to the other lorikeet, "Watch this." <laughs> yeah, hold my nectar. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's funny. A lot of animals get drunk, so... Before we started recording, we were talking about how at our zoos, they have lorikeets. Yeah! And a little exhibit, and you can pay a little bit of money, and you can have a little cup of nectar, and they will come and stand on your head or stand on your shoulder, and you can feed them, and then they go away. And it's really cool. You can get, like, four or five lorikeets on you at a time, and they're really cute. (laughs) They are. They're so cute. And they're like... I'm a tiny dinosaur. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) I'm not cute. I'm I'm dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. All right, Varminions, Critter Crew, 
Just a reminder, go to BlazingCariboustudios.com to links for links to our audio and our show notes for today's episode. Hey, uh, we have a lot of changes going on at the site. Please come and check it out. We got new graphics, and we got a little bit. It's going to be some new stuff happening, new shows, etc., etc. So come on over. Check it out. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at, at Varmint's Podcast, all one word, and at Varmint's Podcast at gmail.com for questions, comments, stories, and suggestions. If you like the show, head on over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a nice little rating and review. And now let's learn about parrots. The kingdom of animals is fascinating. Now I'm going to tell you about their behavior and living pattern. So come on! What in God's holy name are you blathering about? We are blathering about parrots today. There are 393 different species of citizens or parrots in the world. There are three major superfamilies of parrot. There are true parrots, cockatoos, and New Zealand parrots. The greatest diversity of parrots is in South America and Australasia, which is the area of the world which is Australia, New Zealand, New Guinea, and all the many islands that are around those three areas. Since there are so many different species of parrot, sizes and colors, of course, they're going to vary. The buff-faced pygmy parrot is the smallest of all the parrots. It's the fun-sized parrot. <laughs> it, it weighs just under half an ounce, and it is about three inches long or about eight centimeters. It is tiny and cute. It is adorable. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the largest parrot by length in the world is the hyacinth macaw. It is 100 centimeters or almost three and a half feet long from the tip of its tail to the top of its head. That's a big old bird, and it weighs almost two kilograms or about four pounds. The heaviest parrot by weight you're going to talk about in a little while. It's called the kakapo? Kakapo. I can't pronounce it correctly. Kakapu. It's a Maori word. and It's something like <laughs> kakapo. I don't know. I'm sorry, Jess. I, I, I know I'm slaughtering and I'm really trying, but yes. <laughs> it's also called the owl parrot and because they have a kind of an owly face, so... Oh, cool. Yeah. They're really cute. A male parrot is called a cock. A female is called a hen. Babies are called chicks. A group of parrots is called a flock, a company, or a pandemonium, which I love. <laughs> that makes sense, too, if you've seen like a flock <laughs> of parrots hanging out together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not super duper clear where the word parrot comes from, but etymology nerds think it comes from Middle French. Perot, which is kind of a variant of the name Pierre or Peter, and nobody really knows why, but that's where people think it comes from. And the word's earliest known usage was around 1520, and it basically replaced the word Poppinjay, which is what parrots used to be called, and which I'm kind of partial to. I kind of like Poppinjay. That's a fun name. Yeah, Poppinjay is a, that's the word for person. Right? That's a word for a fancy... I've never heard that word. A fancy... It's a Victorian and maybe a little earlier word for a fancy... Um, for a fancy-looking man. Somebody who's real dressed up like a dandy. A popinjay. That's another word I did for not that. know that. Yeah. Huh. Cool. See? I, I have read literature, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> I read the book once. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so turns out parrots are pretty amazing. So we're going to talk about some stuff about them that's amazing. We're going to go over to smithsonian.com, who put us together a huge list that I won't read everything because it's a lot of stuff, but interesting stuff about parrots. Ready? Did you know go some parrots grind their own calcium supplements? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, it's just another brainy feat that they do. It's a tool use thing. So they were observed using date pits and pebbles to pulverize cockle shells. And then they would eat the powder. Uh, the males would eat the powder. And then they offered the calcium-rich snack to females before mating by regurgitation because that's how they offer each other food all the time just so we know if that bothers you that's going to be a lot of that in this show i think yes <laughs> <laughs> they do that that's, that's what they do that's, that's how they roll that's, yeah. that's how parrots do 
So that's interesting. Parrot toes are zygodactyl. So they have four toes per foot. Instead of okay. the three in front, one behind arrangement, parrot toes are configured for maximum grip, two in front and two behind. So, hmm. yeah, it's like having two pairs of, a, of opposable thumbs, which is why they can break into anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Not all parrots are tropical. There are about 350 known species of parrots, and most live in tropical and subtropical regions of Australia, Asia, Central and South America, and Africa. But some parrots broke the geographic mold. Uh, there are keas that live in the alpine regions of New Zealand and nest in ground burrows. And then there are endangered maroon-fronted parrots who dwell at 6,000 feet in the Sierra Madre of Mexico. Here's a sad fact. A third of the world's parrots face extinction. Oh, that's not good. Yes, yes. That's no good at all. Yep, yep. It is climate change and habitat reduction that has, for instance, the African gray has gone down by 99% in Ghana. So, um, yeah, a lot of them are, you can check out the IUCN red list of threatened species and you are unfortunately going to find a lot of parrots on there. So that's oh, man. sort of sad. We need to step it up, humans. We need to fix our behavior. Yep. Parrots usually match their mates. There's a couple of notable exceptions, but most males and females of parrot species look almost identical. <laughs> and it takes really? yeah, it takes a trained biologist and usually a lab test to tell a boy from a girl in most species. There are a couple of species like the Solomon Island electus that are different they're so different from each other that people thought they were different species of birds <laughs> because oh, wow. because the rule of parrots is that they're the same. So they, yeah, it's interesting. The males of that species are emerald green with flame-colored beaks, and the females are crimson, and they have royal blue on their bodies too. So, yeah, mostly they look the same with a few outstanding ex exceptions. Cool. Yeah. The parrot is a very long-lived animal. And so we have to be really careful about getting them for pets because a lot of them have near human lifespans. So Right. Yeah. You don't <laughs> you wanna make sure that you have you know, if you die and your parrot still has like half their life left. <laughs> yeah, make sure you have somebody that you can hand the parrot down to mm -hmm. or a place for it to go. Yep. Sure. Yep. Yep. So, uh, this is interesting. Parrot feathers have been found recently in two thousand eleven, in fact. To contain antibacterial pigments. A parrot's brilliant plumage has special defense against damage. A bacteria-resistant pigment that only parrots are known to produce give the bird's feathers their red, yellow, and green coloration, and researchers exposed the different colors of the feathers to a feather-damaging bacteria strain and found that the pigments help protect the plumage from degradation. So... Wow. They have their own onboard pharmacy. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> yes. And Man. It's definitely cool. The world record holder for um, language of parrots is 1,700 words. Oh, my goodness. Puck, a cheery blue parakeet, landed in the 1995 Guinness Book of World Records for his vocabulary with a recognized set of 1,728 words. <laughs> Man, that is that's more than some people I know, probably including myself. <laughs> For sure, right? I'm like, ooh, I hope I have that many words. <laughs> yeah, so lots and lots of stuff going on in the parrot world. A parrot-proof tracker is on the horizon. So sadly, with so many parrots being on decline and on the red list, you would think we would know a little bit more about them, but we don't in part because canopy-dwelling birds are hard to see and they're hard to study. So GPS tracking studies of parrots are extremely uncommon, and they're very adept at removing foreign objects from their bodies, as you can imagine. <laughs> right. 
A 2015 study published in the UCK might help scientists better track the animals. They encased the GPS trackers in bite-proof plastic, and uh, they were able to track a group of chaos in New Zealand without any obvious ill effects on the birds. So might have a little bit better technology to help us study these guys before they disappear. Come on, guys. As Laura wow. says, Laura Gregg says, sort it out. <laughs> <laughs> That is so cool. Yeah, so that's all real interesting. And I found another thing which we didn't get to put clip for the show because the audio is not that great. But it turns out parrots have personal taste in music. They have their own. <laughs> they have their own t- taste in music, and a lot of them don't appear to like dance music. So we're gonna link that in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll just I'll just close it up by saying I don't think we've talked about this before. Four on the show, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but we just need to point out that birds also have UV vision, which we don't. They have a fourth kind of cone in their eye where they can see in the UV spectrum. So when other birds are looking at each other, we have to imagine that their plumage is going to be super, super glowy and like... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's going to be to them, they're going to look a lot different to each other because of that and it's kind of hard to imagine but I'll try to go into Photoshop and see if I can put some sort of a UV spectrum filter on top of a colorful parrot so we can sort of try to get an idea what it might look like cool so, yeah yeah do that that would be awesome I'll try I'll see what I can do I know I did a, a high saturation one of the orangutans and that was interesting so we'll see we'll see that what I can really come up interesting. with interesting yeah 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 so one of the most obvious physical characteristics of all parrots is that strong, curved, broad bill. Mm-hmm. And that upper mandible is really prominent. It curves downward and it comes to that point, that hook. And unlike most birds, that upper bill is not fused to the skull. It can move independently. And that contributes to the tremendous biting pressure these birds are able to exert. So a large macaw, for example has a bite force of 500 pounds per square inch. That's real close to a very large dog. And you at home don't have to have any special equipment to measure that. Just ask somebody who's been, (laughs) who owns a parrot. Yes. How hard they can bite. Exactly. (laughs) The bill has a covering made of keratin. It's not completely keratin, which is very similar to your hair and nails. And it's constantly growing, just like keratin does. So they need to be constantly chewing to keep the keratin down. Just under that keratin covering is a blood and nerve supply, so it's actually an organ that can feel and get injured and and everything else. Parrots in the wild generally take care of their own beaks pretty well naturally, but hand-fed parrots that are kept as pets tend to have more bill problems, and even once in a while they have to have a veterinarian file and shape them now and again. Mm Mm-hmm. While parrots have a really good field of vision in front, above, and behind their head, they cannot see below their bill into the region where all the food is. So they have a region called the bill tip organ. Now, a lot of birds have this. Ducks and geese have a bill tip organ that you can actually see on the, as that black dot on the end of their bill. Right. The bill tip organ region in a parrot, that region is embedded in the keratin and it also lines the inside of the parrot's bill. And that region has a very, very high density of nerve endings known as the corpuscles of Herbst. (laughs) And those detect touch and even changes in pressure, so it can feel things moving around it without actually feeling it with its bill. It can feel changes in in motion and and air pressure. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of like when your fingertips are... When your hand is in a bag of Chex Mix and you're feeling around and you can tell which one is a pretzel and which one is a rye chip. Right. And you're a monster like someone in my family and you're trying to extract and eat all the rye chips and leave all the pretzels. <laughs> That's pretty much what a bill tip organ does. So the parrot's beak, it's not just a hard, lifeless chunk of keratin. It's an actual organ that can feel and do things and, and help the parrot be a parrot and survive and, and, and eat and all that good stuff. <laughs> I'll have your pretzels. <laughs> <laughs> I like the pretzels, but I like the rye chips, too, and the boy, they disappear. <laughs> All right, well, it's disclaimer time. The Varmints Podcast knows that it's not fair to compare animal intelligence to human intelligence, but then we only really have the yardstick of ourselves to go by, so we're going to do it anyway. Yeah, well, 
you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Parrots are pretty freaking smart. Uh, I was reading an article about an African gray parrot named Alex, who is being studied by a researcher called Irene Pepperberg, and she wanted to see why and how parrots could mimic humans. And over time, she realized that he wasn't just mimicking, he was actually learning and communicating and asking questions and really thinking through things. And he's the only animal documented to ask an existential question about himself, meaning that he was self-aware enough to understand his own existence and asking about it. Ah, nice. Yeah, so he was learning colors, and he looked at himself in the mirror, and he repeated the question, what color is that, about six times. Which, you might think, just shows that Alex was trying to learn the color, but it also shows that Alex was thinking about himself and his own existence as a living thing. Mm -hmm. And that's the only animal that anybody's ever studied that has actually done that, that was able to communicate with humans that has said, who is that guy? Who am I? What am I? Really? It's pretty cool. Are we yeah. sure that the gorilla hasn't done that? I didn't see anything like that. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if a great ape has done that. Yeah. But the article I have says it's the only animal ever studied that asked an existential question. Okay. So I, I don't know. I don't know if I would say it's the only one that has self-awareness, though. Probably not. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure chimpanzees and gorillas and orangutans yeah. do. Yeah. I mean, even human beings don't until we're 18 months old, so. <laughs> <laughs> There's a test you can do where you put a dot on the kid's head, and you can tell when they are aware of themselves as a separate being when they start going, what in the heck is that? And then they start reaching for it. <laughs> that is so cool. I mean, on a scale of 1 to 10, between the smarts and the, and the looks and the colors, mm. parrots are like a... 93. Yeah, they're... They're amazing. They're really cool. They're so cool. I spent a lot of time watching documentaries about them, and they are... There's one that just focuses on pretty much the parrots in Australia, and they have a billion different kinds of parrots, and they're all so interesting. They're just... They're just neat. They're just neat animals. They really are. Ten. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. They're wicked smart and gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to talk about parrots and pop culture and a few other things, but we're going to do that right after this message. I was a fool to think that everything would change after I'd watched my stories each week. My soaps are over. And there's nothing left now. Nothing but the long, cold hours until they air again. I thought it would be a good thing to finally be rid of them, to have my life back. And yet, what a life. Such a lonely existence without them. Sitting in dark cafes, brooding over cold coffee. Staring while the column of ash on my cigarette withers to oblivion. <laughs> waiting. Waiting. <laughs> and then I found them. At last. The Soapy Madams Podcast. They talk about British and American soap operas and soap opera tropes as well. It's a miracle. At last, I can feel 30 or 40 minutes of that cold, dark, silent time with the whimsical voices of the soapy madams. They have soap talk, guests, discussions of soaps from around the world, and games. Oh, so many games. You can find them on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or at soapymadams at podbean.com. Dare to dream. Dare to listen. Dare to soap yourself into a lather <laughs> on the Soapy Madams podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. <laughs> uh, 
I promise that promo will shorten up eventually. We're still working on it, but uh, oh, oh, it's fine. Finish. I hope you don't mind me playing it. No, not at all. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that's no my problem. friend Jim Cooper. He is a fabulous musician, and um, <laughs> oh, he's so funny. I just gave him like a general bullet point, and he made all that up. <laughs> wow, <laughs> so dramatic. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> And now for something completely different. Hey, you know, Donna and I, were a couple of nerds just like you, and we don't see animals up close and in person very often. So let's talk a little bit about where we see them most of the time on movies, TV, and video games. And I chose the 2011 film Rio. Rio is an American 3D computer animated adventure comedy film produced by Blue Sky Studios, who also gave us Ice Age. The yes. title refers to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, where the movie is set. It tells the story of Blue, who is voiced by Jesse Eisenberg, a male Spix's macaw who is taken to Rio de Janeiro to mate with a free-spirited female Spix's macaw named Jewel, who is voiced by Anne Hathaway. The two eventually fall in love, and together they have to escape from being smuggled by a sadistic cockatoo named Nigel. The main problem that Blue and Jewel have to contend with is that Blue is highly domesticated and too scared to fly, and Jewel is wild and able to fly just fine, and their legs are chained together to prevent escape, which they do anyway, so here's that moment. Hey, are you okay? No, I am definitely not okay! Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, what are you doing? Getting out of here! We're on our own, and if we just sit here, we're going to die! Stop, stop! Why don't you just open the door? Kidding me? What? It's just a standard flip slide bolt. Just really oh, oh, oh. What are you doing? Oh, I can't. What? You can't what? <laughs> I can't fly! Is there anything else I need to know? Yes, I can't fly. I pick my beak, and once in a while I pee in the bird bath. Happy? <laughs> <laughs> It is a delightful movie, and it has gotten fairly favorable reviews. It's like a 63% rating on Metacritic and 72% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. We have watched far worse films for this podcast. So yeah, generally it is a good movie, and um, I don't know what I'm trying to say. If you have a chance, go give it a watch. It's it's a good movie. It's got really fun music, too. But the soundtrack is excellent. It's really good. Yeah, it is. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, strangely, this is weird. There's not a lot of parrots in pop culture. There, there just aren't. It's um, it's pretty weird. <laughs> I was looking at the list of birds, pop culture birds. There's like one or two parrots, and um, they're not, you know, super famous. So, eh. not as the main character. A lot of times, no. they're more of a prop than anything. Yeah, which is sort of. Sad, because you would think that they're they're cool enough that you could really do a lot with them in a in a cartoon. But Rio is the only one I can think of that's really focused hard on just parrots, you know. So I don't know. So I I thought we would just talk about people that have them as pets, um, and these are people that I refer to, and I assure you, it is lovingly as bird people. Um, <laughs> If you have people in your life who you love, who have birds, you know what I'm talking about. Generally, they don't have other animals. Having a parrot and other animals is like, that's just not a thing. The impression that I've gotten is that it's difficult to have parrots with other animals because parrots are so smart and they're very um, competitive for human affection. The human that they bond to, they are really possessive of that of that person so i'm not saying there are people that have parrots and other animals but i don't personally know anybody that has a parrot and other animals <laughs> usually right. they seem to like to focus more on the parrot in one case it's because she doesn't have any of the other animals because she's allergic but she also i think told me that if she wasn't allergic she still wouldn't have them because the birds take up too much time space energy and you can't really have other animals well and focus on them. That was just, you know, that's somebody's opinion. I don't have a parrot in the fight, just so we're clear. <laughs> <laughs> but people develop relationships with their birds that are just as 
deep and connected and meaningful as you do with your average dog or cat. And I would argue even it's maybe even a it's a different kind of relationship because we're not talking about a mammal here. We're talking about an avian brain and an avian behavior pattern. And so they don't react the same way to everyday situations as a dog and, and a cat would. So, Right. And I also, I have to think that, and maybe this sounds kind of cruel or mean or whatever, but you get a dog and you buy a dog and you know that you're going to get a maximum of probably 13 to 15 years out of that dog. And then you're going to have to make a tough decision and then you get a new dog. Yes. Whereas when you get a parrot, you're going to have that parrot maybe for the rest of your life. Yes. And I'm, I I think I would have to think that that would change your relationship with it somehow. You would think so. And I think it does because it's such a long term commitment that it just becomes a different relationship than you would have with your, with your dog. Say. So yeah, it's absolutely. Not, not better, not worse, just different. And I found an article that is a few years old, but is absolutely hilarious. That seems to talk about the relationship between yourself and your parrot in a way that's very lighthearted and very funny, but also warns you. And the title of the article warns you that this isn't just a pet. This is a huge commitment. And she she called the piece a delightful, awful marriage to a pet parrot. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not going to read the whole article for you, but I'll just read a tiny excerpt from the art- article. A captive parrot selects the only mate it can find. In this case, Charlie's picked me. But I refuse to follow the plan he's laid out for me. I share my affections with another of my species, even when Charlie punctures my skin to prevent this perceived infidelity. (laughs) I won't eat the breakfast he regurgitates for me, no matter how tenderly proffered. Occasional furtive copulations with my sock-clad foot net him nothing but a temporary release. He points out and protects his chosenness site, a grotto under the sink with cracked squawks and sudden rushes at passerby. But I can't succumb to his will, crawl under the sink, and lay the two round white eggs that Charlie believes I must have in me that he so longs to incubate and protect. (laughs) 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 And it just goes on like that. It's not a long article, but the author is... There's an audio version of her reading the article as well, and it's fabulous. And she's got pictures of Charlie, and he's adorable. And uh, so, yeah, go check it out. I'll put it in, That's link awesome. in the show notes. But yes, it is a huge commitment. And I have heard about this possessiveness and jealousy from my friends that have them. They're, they will they get jealous of the other human that's in your life. They're like, what are you doing? You're my mate. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of that too. <laughs> oh, oh bird people. We have bird people in our audience and we love you and we thank you for listening and we appreciate you so much. And I am not one of you. I'm not either because I couldn't, <laughs> man, I just can't commit for that long. I don't think I can't either. Yeah. But I think it's awesome that people are. Yeah. They're, they're amazing. Bird people are totally amazing and they have a completely different outlook on life and that's why I like having them in my world because I don't know, maybe their brains are a little bit more avian. Maybe. (laughs) I don't want to say bird brained as an insult because as we've we've seen, birds are pretty freaking bright, a lot of them, so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bird people, you are bird brains. You're fantastic. You're wonderful Wonderful, wonderful bird brains. And, and we so you. weird. And you guys know you're weird. You know you are. <laughs> Which I appreciate, but you know you are. <laughs> Weirdos. All right, let's do this before we get into any more trouble. I like to eat. <laughs> I like to eat, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to be really hungry, and it would have to be a really big parrot and not an endangered one for me to eat one. But otherwise, probably no. Yeah, no, I think. They're not in the food box, but just as a general rule, I don't want to add more things to the food box. We already have several species of animals that we raise for meat, and I believe that uh, we need to be completely responsible about how we manage that before we add another one. So my answer would be pretty much always a no with this kind of an animal. (laughs) 
Hey, Donna. Hmm. Is your brain a repository of useless information like mine is? Yeah, usually. Awesome. Well, let's help everybody win that next trivia night or just sound smarter than the rest of the room with the animal fact of the week. Is this your homework, Larry? Like, man. Do, please. So, Donna, think of, like, the typical pirate in the early 18th century where the, the golden age of piracy, like Long John Silver in Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson with the eye patch and the peg leg and the rough Scottish accent and maybe a sword and a parrot on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. So, is that real? Did some pirates back then walk around with parrots? I would imagine they had voids. So, yeah, the answer, surprisingly enough, is probably. So we don't have any actual accounts or documents or engravings of old pirates that confirm that pirates walked around with parrots on their shoulders, but there's a few things to consider. So how piracy started was that there was a boom in exploration when the Americas and Australia were discovered and trade really started flourishing Money and gold and spices and other highly prized goods, including animals, who were either live or taxidermied, were traveling back and forth across the ocean. And some sailors said, well, why not just steal these things? It's a lot easier than buying and selling and trading. And so that's kind of how piracy was born. On these long sea voyages, they were boring and dirty and uncomfortable and generally pretty miserable. And by the way, I'm a geek about pirates, and if you think it would have been really, really cool to be a pirate, just do yourself a favor and do a little reading up on it. It's a pretty rough way of life. You're talking about piracy in the 15 to 17 to 1800s, right? That, that, Correct. That section, not general Ye piracy. Not general piracy, but just in that, in that era, in that period of time. Right. So a companion animal would have probably helped out quite a bit on these voyages. But what kind of animal? Well, you wouldn't certainly want anything too large because you have to feed large things and the food is meant for the sailors. Dogs were mainly pets for aristocrats back then, so a dog on a pirate ship would have been very, very rare and probably non-existent. Maybe a cat would have been on a pirate ship. They would have been good to have around to catch rats. But if you're traveling to exotic lands, you might not just want a dog or a cat. You might want something a little more exotic. Monkeys were actually somewhat common, and they did trade monkeys quite a bit, but monkeys eat people food, mm -hmm. and they're a little bit big. But parrots, on the other hand, parrots don't eat all that much, and what they can and do eat can be easily stored on board on a, on a boat. Mm -hmm. And they're colorful, they're intelligent, they're funny. If you wanted to sell one, they fetched a lot of money in England or the Americas because they were also traded, and they continue to be traded today. Or when you got into port, you could just perch one on your shoulder as a sign of your personal wealth and look what an awesome pirate I am. So it is just not at all beyond the realm of possibility that a pirate back then would have been walking around with a parrot on his shoulder or had a at least a parrot in his cage in his quarters. Mm. It's pretty cool. It is. I have a lot of pirate nerdery in my in my book collection as well and I just I don't remember ever seeing an engraving or anything but it's such a popular image it has to have some sort of history behind it right I mean yep and they can't really find the exact history but they people who have looked into it have said yeah that could happen it could happen it could be a thing <laughs> I like the idea of a of a pirate with like some sort of different bird on the shoulder though wouldn't you think like a like a like tiny a... little lorikeet or something instead of a big cockatoo <laughs> or a conure or whatever just like a teeny weeny little guy me what if it was one of the tiny little itty bitty the buff face little guy that's only little I was just gonna say one of the little fun sized parrots yeah the one that's as long as your <laughs> finger he'd be on his shoulder and he'd be like meaty <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's ridiculous, Donna. <laughs> that's ridiculous. <laughs> okay, um, did you know that there is only one parrot in the world who is not a flying bird? He is a walking bird. And he is called the Kakapo, who live in New Zealand. The Kakapo... Yeah. 
is um it's derived <laughs> from the Maori terms uh kaka which is parrot and po <laughs> night so it's a night parrot yeah they, that's <laughs> not the same word it's not the same language, guys. Sometimes the sounds just sound the same. <laughs> I'm stifling the inner 13-year-old that know. is just laughing every time you say kakapo. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> eh, that's not what it means, though. I know. Um, Its generic name is derived from the ancient Greek strix genitive strigos, or owl, and ops face, right? So so their Greek name is uh, Strygops habroptila. Oh, that's a hard word to say. But they are a large, <laughs> flightless, nocturnal, ground-dwelling parrot, and they are uh, New Zealanders, and they are adorable. Oh my gosh, they're so cute. I'm looking at them right now. They are they are a beautiful bird. They Look are at that. really gorgeous, and they're huge. They're so big. It's ridiculous. I'm just trying to find their size here really quick. Well, I'm looking at a picture of a man who's surrounded by what looks to be four or five or six cockapos, and they look to be the, about the size of small dogs. Mm-hmm. They're, they're massive. They are. For a bird. They're super big, man. Yeah. So the adult can measure from 58 to 64 centimeters. That's 23 to 25 inches in length. And their weight can vary from uh, 0.95 to 4 kilograms, which is 2 to 9 pounds at maturity. And males are larger than females. So that is a big bird. <laughs> yes, it is. The sad story about the kakapo is that they are critically endangered. So before the Polynesians came to New Zealand, the kakapo was New Zealand's third most common bird, and it was widespread on all three main islands. But the population in New Zealand declined massively because of human settlement. The Maori used to eat them and decorate their clothes with them and stuff, and so... I mean, that was okay because that they didn't do... They're not the ones that are responsible for the major problem. They hunted them for food and stuff. They probably did it a little more sustainably. Well, than... I mean, the Maori managed to kill off, like, some a lot of species of birds. So don't don't oh. get me wrong. They, they, definitely, okay. they definitely had an effect. But the real problem was European settlers that brought with them rabbits. There was a, a guy oh. that brought rabbits... Um, to hunt and unfortunately the rabbits became a problem so they decided they needed something to kill the rabbits and they brought domestic cats, black rats and stoats over. Of course. And that was it for the kakapo. So now there are like 30 or so breeding pairs. Like, oh no wow really? Yeah. Only that many? Mm -hmm. They were thought to be extinct for a very long time and then they're in 1894, the government appointed a guy called Richard Henry as a caretaker to try to bring them back. And so he was kind of aware that what was going on was because of invasive species, and he started catching and moving the kakapo from the mainland to a predator-free island called Resolution Island. So he moved more than 200 of them to the island but in 1900, stoats had swum over there and colonized it, and they wiped out all the whole population within oh, six years. Oh, jeez. A stoat can swim more than a kilometer, so it has to be <laughs> it oh, has to be man. out of stoat um, out of stoat reach, right? So yeah. Uh, so in 1903, three kakapo were moved from Resolution Island to the reserve of Little Barrier Island on the northeast of. Auckland, but feral cats were there and the kakapo were never seen again. In 1912, three of them were moved to another reserve, which is Kapiti Island, northwest of Wellington. One of them survived until at least 1936, um, but that didn't turn out so good. And on and on. They keep trying and trying and trying. And so in the 1950s, the New Zealand Wildlife Service was established. And so they began to 
to form expeditions to look around for Kakapo. And finally, there were several expeditions, and finally in 1958, one was caught and released in the Milford Sound catchment area in Fjordland. Six more were caught in 1961, and then eventually all this work ends up that they now have this reserve out on Codfish Island. And so, I mean, this was all very hard. They were pretty sure that they were going to lose them for the majority of this time. And But uh, out on Codfish Island, they've managed to get it so that there it is completely predator-free. And you actually cannot go there without permission. You have to have a special license to visit the island, even. there's Nobody can be there except people taking care of the kakapo or doing articles on the kakapo or something like that. It's a, it's a whole thing now. And it's a, it's really hard because there's so few of them that they are dealing with, guess what? Interbreeding problems. They, yeah. Yeah. So Mm. this sort of thing happens in history and it happens naturally, but this was actually human. This was a human problem. Um, but this is called a bottleneck when a species is down to this few members. And so there's still hope as long as they can manage to get a fairly disease-free genetic, you know, stable genetic base, they can probably start growing the population. And New Zealand is committed to getting rid of the invasive predators on their islands. And I know that, that upsets a lot of people because it means that a lot of little critters die. And we've talked about that before. It means a lot of ferrets, stoats, weasels, and bunnies are going to have to meet their maker. <laughs> but yeah, you can do that and keep your native birds. Or you can let it just be what it is and then pretty much lose all of them. So New Zealand right. has decided that they would rather keep their native birds there's already been a lot of species of parrot that are gone forever because of these ing- invasive species. So, um, if you want to help the Kakapo Recovery Program, I will put notes to the program in the show notes, and you can read all about how they do everything. They have a little bit better chance than an animal just left on its own with this small of a population because they have figured out a way to do artificial insemination and they're they have had some success there's still very few breeding pairs but there's hope as long as they just can keep at it and keep that keep that genetic selection clean and i'll put a link to the really awesome documentary about it in the show notes that i encourage everybody to watch because it's so moving how dedicated these scientists are to the preservation of this species and I mean I guess I've heard some people argue it's such a I mean it's a lot of money and and effort and stuff to dedicate to saving one small bird but I mean it's the only species of parrot that is ground dwelling and and it's native and it does awesome things so and not that it matters but it's also really cute (laughs) <laughs> we should also save the ugly things but it is it yeah is, exactly we need to save the ugly things but you know this this is a really cute parrot it is so cute and they have the most interesting behaviors and they can teach us a lot about how animals develop in different search situations the fact that they're an island species is you know there's all sorts of stuff that's interesting about that um the documentary i was talking about the narrator says stuff like the kakapo are hiding from an eagle species, a giant eagle species that's been extinct for 2,000 years or something. <laughs> Nobody's told them yet that these guys aren't a problem anymore. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, like this eagle was extinct before humans came to the island, I guess. So oh, they, wow. they don't even, they're still hiding from a predator that hasn't been around for oh. years or something. So, they make a really cool noise when they're mating. Yeah, too. the boys make this boom noise to attract the females, and so we're gonna play a little bit of that and then move on to the rest of the show. And and this is not your MP3 player or podcast device malfunctioning. This is actually the noise that they make. Yes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
So they they um they live an average they know of ninety years, but the upper end seems to be hundred and twenty years or so. Whoa! Holy cow! Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yes. So in 2009, there were 38 males and 21 females. So this is not a situation that is um, sustainable, really, without human intervention. But hopefully, hopefully, we can we can save them. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to the Varmints podcast. We are brought to you with technical support by Matthew Chobo and music by Kevin McLeod. As always, thank you, guys. And by you, the Patreon supporter, thank you so much for kicking in a dollar or two every month to the Blazing Caribou Studios Patreon. We really do appreciate it. And thank you to Blazing Caribou Studios, too, for continuing to give us a home. Keep an eye on Blazing Caribou Studios, like Donna said at the beginning, because there are changes and there are some wonderful things coming up that are just going to please and delight you to no end. Yes. This week, our rug rat is also the inspiration for this episode. Parker wanted us to talk about parrots a long, long time ago, and he has been so patient. And he is our rug rat this week. Yay. We love Parker. We do. So here's what he has to say about parrots. Hey, mom, do you know what a parrot's favorite game is? No, what? Hide and speak. Oh, Parker, you're silly. <laughs> Tell me a real fact about parrots. Well, they're the most intelligent of the bird species. Did you know that? I didn't. Yeah, and the world record holder spoke over 1,700 words. Whoa, that's a lot. No wonder you like parrots. They like to talk. Do you know what's <laughs> smarter than a talking parrot? No, what? A spelling bee. <laughs> yes because parker puns see that's why he's our buddy because he can t- he can he can pun with the best of them thanks everybody again for listening and until next time be nice to animals and we love you bird people <laughs> <laughs> you've been listening to a blazing caribou studios production Support and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash blazingcariboustudios. <laughs> Hundreds of the brightly colored native Australians have been descending on a weeping boar bean tree near the summer house to drink fermenting network from its flowers. It's commonly known as the drunken parrot tree, and the flowers bloom in late spring through early summer. Paul? And that gives... Yes? You said fermenting network instead of nectar. <laughs> Three, two, one. Thank you. Three, two, one. Hundreds of the brightly colored native Australians have been descending on a weeping boar bean tree and near the summer house to drink fermenting nectar from its crimson... I can't talk. Three, two, one. Hundreds of the brightly colored native Australians have been descending on a weeping boar bean tree in the summer near the... (laughs) I don't know what that was. (laughs) Oh, three, two... (laughs) Three, two, one...